We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn there. If you weren't here at the beginning of the service, we want to make sure you know we, we welcome you and we're glad to worship together. I'm excited about just getting to talk real frankly and particularly about the gospel this morning. So uh, let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord, we come to you now. We're thankful. We're thankful that we can praise you. We're thankful that we sit here 2,000 years after Christ walked the earth, believing the truth that came in that time, still having access to our God. Lord, I'm thankful for the power of the gospel. There's such proof in the reality that there are so many people who believe in you, and with the culture and the world and how it constantly pulls at us, I'm thankful to be gathered with a group of people um, who are in Christ. I'm thankful this morning to be gathered knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. I'm thankful to be able to be preaching a message knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We also want to bring some things to you this morning and ask for your, your help and your, uh, your blessing. First, we want to pray for another church. We pray for Pastor Charlie Nasser at Top Rail Cowboy Church. Um, I'm thankful um, that they are meeting together. I'm thankful that they are preaching the gospel. I'm thankful that they are serving others in their community. And I'm thankful for that church. And I pray particularly that Charlie has enjoyed you this week that he is continuing to enjoy you this morning. I pray for his marriage, that it is strong, Lord. I pray that their congregation would be blessed by their time this morning. Lord, we also pray um, for our city council. Lord, I'm thankful for a city council, first of all, for people that will take time out of their already busy schedules um, to consider major decisions that need to be made for our community. And I pray that you would give them wisdom and insight and discernment as they do it, And I pray that you would bless them. Lord, give us insight this morning in Romans 1.16 that we would otherwise not have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek I want us to be very honest with the text this morning, and in order to encourage honesty in your minds and in your hearts, I want to start off by confessing, I remember one of the first times I genuinely felt ashamed of the gospel. Yes, the pastor preaching the message this morning certainly remembers his first time, or one of the first times, where he was genuinely ashamed of the gospel. Now, I didn't come right out and say, Oh man, hey, look at me, I'm ashamed of the gospel. It was that I had made a decision based on gospel input and gospel truth, and it didn't go like I had planned at all. Things went real south. And I thought, well, I'm never going to do that again. Let me explain. I'd been playing basketball with some friends in our neighborhood. I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And there was this one guy who ran his mouth the whole time. I don't know if you've ever played sports with a person like that or played against a person like that who just runs their mouth nonstop. Always got something to say, always talking trash. And so this guy 
was running his mouth. Uh, when you're that age, you pretty much match up on height. So he and I were the same height, so it was me and him in this five-on-five game. Well, long story short, I beat him. Um, I didn't have to run my mouth. I let my skills do the talking. <laughs> I, uh, at the end of the game, um, we, we won. And it's always a little bit worse when someone's real mouthy and then they really lose. I mean, I beat him pretty bad, to be honest with you. So anyway, I'm walking home with my friends after this game. We're celebrating. And he rolls up with a couple friends um, behind us. And I remember he rolls up in the driveway and he throws his bike on the ground. And you know it is serious when someone throws their bike on the ground. And he comes up to me, he gets in my face. Remember, we're 11 or 12, so this is intense. And he says, why you got to be pushing me on the court? Okay. I said, man, I didn't push you. I just beat you. I beat you fair and square. I didn't push you. He said, nobody pushes me. Wham! And punches me in the chest. Now, I look at my chest, I look at him, and I kind of giggled. I thought it was cute. It was a punch in the chest. Who punches someone in the chest? And so um, I look at him, and I'm like, what was that? He goes, oh, you think it's funny? And he punched me in the mouth. Now, I don't know if you've ever been punched in the mouth, but there's a major difference between being punched in the chest and punched in the mouth. I was filled with rage immediately. There's, it's like there's nerve endings right here that said, anger, get even now. He will pay. So I'm sitting there in that moment. You've been punched in the mouth. My friends, his friends, I'm looking at him. I know I can take him. I have no doubt about that. That was not a concern, just so you all know. Um, and I'm looking at him, and I'm going over in my head, what am I going to do here? How, how am I going to handle this? But then the other thing in my head is Mrs. Woods. She's our Sunday school teacher. And that week, the lesson was on turning the other cheek and walking away. That week! I'm sitting there going, okay, I really want to teach this guy a lesson, but Hearing Miss Woods say, the gospel says, turn the other cheek, walk away. Don't, don't hit him back. Don't hit him back. Turn the other cheek. You can imagine my, the quandary, the conflict, because I didn't expect to have a Sunday school lesson on turning the other cheek and get punched in the mouth in the same week, right? That's not how you think it's going to go down. You're thinking, yes, someday down the line, I may be able to apply this, but here I am, swollen lip, thinking, oh man. And so, in the most anticlimactic fight of our neighborhood, I look at the guy and I say, you're lucky, man. My Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Woods, taught us about turning the other cheek, so that's what I'm going to do, but just once. And I turned around and I walked off, just walked away. As I'm walking away, of course, he's like, that's right, you don't want none of this, and I'm thinking, oh, I want all of it, I want to, I want to... I want to teach you a lesson. But he's screaming at me, that's right, you don't want none of this. I knew I had done the right thing by turning the other cheek and walking away. I knew it. I knew it. I could hear Mrs. Mrs. Wood's voice in my head. You did the right thing. I knew that I'd done the right thing by turning the other cheek and walking away. But I didn't feel the way I thought I was going to feel about turning the other cheek and walking away. Not only is he screaming at me as I'm walking away saying, I don't want none, but the next couple hours, my friends begin to talk. Man, I can't believe you let that guy chump you like that. That you let that guy make a fool of you. 
He hit you in the mouth and you just stood there, dude. You looked scared. Don't you think you could have taken him? He's probably bragging to his friends right now, talking about how he punched you in the mouth and you looked at him and did nothing. So his aim as I was walking away was to shame me. And then my friends joined in with him and tried to shame me. And they were successful. As it all boiled up in that moment, I felt ashamed. I felt that painful feeling of humiliation, stress that comes from knowing that someone thinks you're wrong, or that you did the wrong thing, or that you made a dumb decision. The stress and humiliation that comes from losing someone's respect, feeling dishonored, feeling patronized, maybe even minimized. Particularly, I felt ashamed that I had turned the other cheek, because it seemed like a dumb idea at this point. Ashamed that I didn't teach the guy a lesson. I felt ashamed because at this point, turning the other cheek seemed stupid. Turning the other cheek didn't gain anyone's respect. In fact, it made them lose respect for me. I had this picture in my mind, I will do what the gospel says and my friends will rejoice with me. But they made fun of me. So in that moment, I stood up, I looked at my friends and said, okay, let's go find them. Done. They won. Shame led to me being ashamed. I was going to go get the guy, get my respect back, because I felt ashamed about turning the other cheek. Now, you may be thinking, Scott, I didn't realize you were such a thug. <laughs> you were so, so hardcore, so hood, such a ruffian, that you had such a rough upbringing. But believe it or not, there are others who have had much bigger trials than my post-basketball neighborhood scuffle and in fact, they remained amazingly, beautifully unashamed of their decision, unashamed of the truth they stood in, and unashamed of the gospel. And that's where we're at in Romans 1.16. We need to remember that as we're reading Romans 1.16, Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And you see before that it says for. And anytime you're reading scripture and you see a for or a therefore, you ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It points back to the previous verse. It's connecting to what was just said. So I want us to see the connectivity between verses 15 and 16. 15 says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We have to see this as we start this morning. The reason that Paul wants to preach to the church in Rome is that he's not ashamed of the gospel. So the reason he wants to go preach to them is that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason that he's not ashamed of the gospel is that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That's our general outline for the morning. He wants to go preach. Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God to everyone who believes. So our, that's our general outline, our specific outline this morning, so you can kind of know where we're going. We're going to ask two of the really obvious questions of the text. And then we're going to consider two ways of being ashamed, and then we're going to consider four possible application points. It's pretty straightforward. So the two questions that we need to answer, the ones that I think are obvious of the text, why might Paul ever be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Because you don't say that. You don't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, unless in fact you could be tempted, unless you went through a trial of some sort where you were tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. So what was it? What were the reasons? What were the events where Paul may have been tempted to, in fact, be ashamed of the gospel? 
And then the second question we'll consider is, how might the church in Rome have been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? So let's consider Paul's temptations. I'm not going to have you turn to very many verses this morning, but turn over to 2 Corinthians. It's just briefly to your right in the text. 2 Corinthians 11. And in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is recounting his sufferings as an apostle, an apostle of Christ, an apostle of, of the gospel. And he's recounting these sufferings, and in 11.23, we see him say, he's getting kind of crazy, and he even says, I sound like a madman, but I'm telling you everything that I've gone through in 11.23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And then, then we hear this list, and I want you all to think of this list as the obvious ways that Paul could have been shamed, which tempted him to being ashamed of the gospel. So he's a servant, an apostle, he speaks gospel, he stands firm in gospel, and this is what happens. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What's important for us to understand is that Paul said these things far before he wrote the words in Romans. These are the things that happened to Paul. These are the things he experienced leading up to him saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. These are the things that led up to the statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So I want to make sure we don't get it backwards. Paul didn't start off ministry saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and then go through a bunch of stuff and then quit talking about it. He started, he was called, he was changed. He went through all these trials, and then he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Look at Acts 23. Acts 23, verse 1 and 2. This is Paul before the Jerusalem council. Paul used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. The Jerusalem council wasn't a foreign thing to him. These were his Jerusalem, his Jewish brothers and sisters. He stood in the gospel. He's been brought before the authorities here. And in 23.1, it says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience, good conscience, up to this day. You can almost hear him saying, I'm not ashamed. Right? I'm standing before this council. You guys are going to judge me. And I want you guys to know I've lived my life in good conscience up to this day. And look at verse 2. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. That's the high priest. 
He's saying, I, I got a good conscience. I'm not ashamed. And the high priest says, hey, um, you, you're right by him. Hit him in the mouth. Can you imagine? You're talking to someone, giving an account, saying you have a good conscience, that you're not ashamed. And that person says, hey, whoever's standing next to him, punch him in the mouth. That's the setting here. The thing that made Paul fit to proclaim that he was not ashamed of the gospel is that Paul proclaimed the gospel itself. And he didn't just proclaim it in places that were safe or neutral or guaranteed. He proclaimed it where he was guaranteed to get punched in the mouth, run out of town, hit with rods, hit with a whip, lashed, skin laid open, stones thrown at him, run out of town, in danger everywhere he went, maybe even unfriended. And in each of those trials, there was no doubt a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, right? In each of those trials, there had to be a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. How many times would you have to get punched in the mouth before you stopped speaking the gospel? How many times would you have to get drug out and beat up and left for dead before you said, you know what, maybe this isn't working. Maybe this isn't worth it. So there's no doubt that Paul had lots of temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. Now what about the church in Rome? Turn back to Romans 1. What about the church in Rome? What I want us to see this morning, Rome, the church in Rome who Paul is writing to, Rome, Rome itself was a pagan culture of significant power, the center of the world's greatest empire, marked by pagan worship and pagan architecture. You couldn't look anywhere without seeing the marks of decades and decades and decades of paganism and worship of Greek gods and Greek goddesses and utter what we would call godlessness and idolatry. The church in Rome was young, only about 20 years old. So you have this culture that's old, that's established, and then you have the church in Rome that is very young, small in number, and divided. The church in Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles, two people who differed far more greatly than me and my friend who hit me in my mouth. They differed far more greatly than any other um, ethnicities or, or people groups in the history of the earth, but that's who made up the church. So why might they be tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel? Why might Paul feel inclined to write them and say, I'm not ashamed and I hope you're not ashamed? They certainly didn't have the power to overcome their circumstances, right? They were small in number. They were young and they were divided. So they didn't have the power to overcome their circumstances. And they existed as believers in Christ in a context where the Greeks thought they were fools and the Jews thought they were blasphemers because of the gospel. So if the source of people's angst towards you is the gospel, you're going to hope, yeah, I hope it has power. I hope there's power in it because, frankly, they didn't have the goods to overcome their circumstances. It had to be the power of God because it was also the source of people's rejection of them. So in a sense, you can see that the church in Rome, like if you're going to be a member of the church in Rome, you can't just kind of be a member of the church in Rome. You're all in. All the chips are on the table. I shouldn't use gambling illustrations, but I did. You're all in. You can't just sort of be a member. Paul knew that the church in Rome needed encouragement because he knew what it was like to face hardships, 
because of the truth of the gospel that you stand in, in hard circumstances. So when we're talking about being ashamed, what does that mean? What does it mean to be ashamed and how does that come about? What I want us to look at now are two ways of possibly being ashamed. One way of being ashamed of the gospel is probably the most obvious, through disapproval, right? Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've shared your gospel stance at work or with friends and they didn't approve. They said, really? Maybe they accused you of being old-fashioned or narrow-minded or something along those lines. But disapproval is one way to become ashamed of the gospel. When you share the gospel with someone, or you stand firmly on the principles of the gospel, and then you are maligned and beaten and mocked and shamed, this can lead to becoming ashamed. When you are met with disapproval, you're often met with shame, right? People don't just quietly disapprove, usually in our culture, Usually in our culture, they very vocally disapprove, and they will bring shame. How dare you? How dare you have that perspective? How dare you force such a belief on me and my friends? This is what Paul's talking about. He was shamed by others because of the gospel, but this never led him to being ashamed of the gospel. We have to see that this morning. It's an important point. Paul was shamed by others because of the gospel, but Paul never became ashamed of the gospel. This means that you can and likely will be shamed by others who do not approve of the gospel, but you don't have to give in to it, and you don't have to become like them. Your standing firm in the gospel is the means that some of them will become like you. When someone says, I disapprove, say, okay, never mind. You you don't just say, never mind. You don't just be quiet. You don't just hide your beliefs or change your beliefs. Your goal is to stand firm so that they can become a person like you who is also unashamed of the gospel. The church in Rome needed to hear this because the next 300 years of Christianity in Rome would face very costly disapproval. The time of Nero was coming. This was before, this was being said, Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and he's urging them not to be ashamed of the gospel, and he did that before the time of Nero, where Nero fed Christians to lions for sport in the Colosseum, where Nero lit his garden with human torches, where Nero was one of the most vile, crazy, insane, lunatic leaders who hated Christianity, and it wouldn't be until 313 that Constantine would bring the Edict of Milan and change things, and then 10 years after that, Christianity would be the main religion. So they had some trials that they would face and some, no doubt, some disapprovals from others. But that's not the only way of being ashamed. It's the most obvious, but there's another way of being ashamed of the gospel. The first is by disapproval. The second is by disbelief. If you're taking notes, write those two things down. The first way is by disapproval. The second is by disbelief. This week, an old friend of mine, we were real close back in junior high and high school, he posted something on Facebook about his utter disdain for those who don't approve of gay marriage. And I read it, and then I kept reading. And his goal wasn't to just state his belief. His goal was to state his belief and then state that any state, county, uh, uh, person, Uh, cat, dog, hamster, anyone, anything who disagreed, he said, you know, what they can do and where they can go and how he feels about how 
ugly it is for someone to, to think that they can encroach upon someone's inalienable rights to, to choose who they will love and to choose even what gender they are. So his goal wasn't just to state what he believed. His goal was to shame those who didn't agree with him. I didn't agree. So I thought about it for a few minutes, sat there in that same situation. Okay, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do? How, how do I respond to this? And I want to be real honest about my thinking in this situation because it speaks to what it means to be unashamed of the gospel. As I sat about and thought about it, I thought, man, this guy would probably hate me today, right? I mean, I'm a Baptist pastor in a rural community. He lives in L.A., our views are just very different. If he knew what I felt about marriage and about life and other things, this guy would probably hate me. In fact, he pro- if he knew what I believed, he'd, he'd probably unfriend me. He'd probably unfriend me, and then I wouldn't get to see these joyful, encouraging, and edifying updates that he often posts. Or, gosh, he's still closer to everyone we went to high school with, so... Man, he'd probably, if he knew what I believed, he'd probably tell him, man, can you believe old Scott Sutton? He's become this, one of those narrow-minded, intolerable um, people that doesn't believe in what I believe in. That's the kind of struggle, that thinking, at that point, I might be struggling with being ashamed because of disapproval, right? He's an old friend, we, we went to, he lives in L.A., that's just a weird place, and we're different. And he's going to disapprove. But I continued thinking. And as I thought about reaching out to my friend to try to explain the issue further, or try to really, really um, reason together, I thought, man, he's so far gone, nothing I say will matter. This is a futile endeavor. So what I'm saying in that moment is, It's a futile endeavor to try to speak to someone who disagrees with you. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's not how it works. It's not a futile endeavor to speak to someone who disagrees with you. That's the whole point in sharing the gospel. Generally, you're going to share it with people who may not embrace it at first. But the gospel has some power in it. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I'm sitting here thinking, he's so far gone What's the point? You know, what's the point? Let's count our losses, call it a wash. He's so far gone. How could I say anything? What could I possibly share that could change a person? This is being ashamed because of disbelief. Particularly disbelief that the gospel could have an effect on someone so far gone. I think we're guilty of this maybe more than we realize. The thought that the gospel... The disbelief that the gospel could have a powerful effect on someone so far gone. What do you think Paul would think about that? Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, would be the equivalent of a terrorist saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What happened to bring him to that point? The gospel. For Paul, his goal used to be to kill those who believed in it, 
or at least enslave them, beat them, and make an example of them to others who might consider believing the gospel. But Paul received the gospel, and after having received it, turns out it was pretty powerful because he cannot now help but remain unashamed of it. How did this happen? Why did this happen? How does this work? Well, Paul goes on in the rest of verse 16 to tell us. How can Paul go from being a guy so far gone to being a guy who's unashamed of the gospel? How does that happen for Paul and how does it happen for us as we engage those sometimes in our past, people we meet that seem so far gone? How might they become people like Paul who are unashamed of the gospel? And the answer is in the next part of the verse. Because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. I'm really glad it says everyone, because that means there's never a futile endeavor. There's never a time where this is not worthwhile for me to share the gospel. Everyone who believes. The door has been swung wide open to the nations through the power of the gospel, and Paul wants us to see this, and if we don't see it, we may be terribly guilty of becoming ashamed of the gospel, thinking that somehow it can't do what it says it will do. The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now, we're going to draw some distinctions in this next part that are very important. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, right? What's a church generally made up of? Converts, believers. I mean, hopefully, we have lost friends. Like, we're supposed to have lost friends. We're supposed to do our best to bring them, but he's writing to the church in Rome. Paul is writing to saved people in Rome. So what I want to make clear is that there is no doubt that the gospel has the power to change lost people to save people. But that's not what Paul's talking about right here. And it's very important because we're talking about people going from being so far gone to being unashamed of the gospel. We're talking about the thing that empowers us to, to rise above the disapprovals that we receive. And so Paul's talking about a particular kind of power, but he's not talking about the power that brings lost people to save people. The power that Paul is referring to is not about saving the lost, it's about bringing saved people to salvation. This is very, very important. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So imagine a timeline, right? Here is a timeline where people hear the gospel, they're not saved, and then something happens, and then they're saved, and, and so now there's this set of time, but then there's this bigger part of the timeline of people being saved who need to be brought unto salvation. That is the power that Paul is talking about here, bringing saved people to salvation. So what does that mean? Well, he's talking about the power not just to make converts, but the power to make disciples. So what does that mean? It means that the only hope we will, in fact, the only hope that we will in fact bring the gospel to lost people is that saved people are continuing in it every day. Is that saved people are enjoying the power of the gospel every day. There is no hope for lost people if saved people are not continuing in the gospel every day. In one of his many sermons on these verses, um, John Piper says, you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it doesn't just make converts. It saves those converts utterly. You don't hear the gospel and then say, okay, I needed that to go from being lost to being saved, but now I'm going to depend on me to make it to the end. We depend on the gospel. We stand firmly in it. 
So I have to remain firm in the gospel, and then I can consider my friend, right? My friend who, who made his, his thoughts very clear online, right? I have to stand firmly in the gospel, and then I consider my friend, and here's what I want you all to see. My goal for my friend is not that he thinks what I think. Sometimes we fall into this terrible thing of, I will not stop talking until you apologize for not thinking what I think. That's not evangelism. That's not disciple making. My goal isn't for him to, to approve what I think. My goal isn't even just for my friend to understand what I think. My goal is for him to have what I have. Is that clear? My goal is for him to have what I have. The gospel. And frankly, disapproval doesn't matter very much at that point, right? Disapproval doesn't matter very much at that point. If your goal is to get others to think what you think, then disapproval is a major thing because you failed, right? If you're sitting there, my goal is just to get you to think what I think or approve what I think or even understand what I think, and they say, no, I'm not buying it. Well, then you didn't meet your goal, so disapproval means failure. But if your goal is for them to have what you have, if your goal is to deliver to them the gospel, disapproval doesn't matter very much, does it? Because it doesn't mean failure. If your goal is the gospel and they disapprove, that doesn't mean failure. The gospel has power beyond your words that you spoke about it. You share gospel with someone, in that moment there may be a decision. In that moment there may not. But guess what? That gospel that you shared, it has power far greater than how you shared it. Far greater than the eloquence with which you spoke. Far greater than the emphasis that you placed on just the right words at just the right time. The gospel has the power. Do you trust the power of the gospel when you share it with other people? Because that is how you remain unashamed of the gospel. So we have some application points we're going to look at. I've come up with four application possibilities. And here's what I was thinking this morning. I almost knocked a couple of them out because I thought, well, most of the people may not... I don't, I don't, know, I don't know where people are. I don't know how this is going to hit you. The reality is, you may not connect with every application point. You may not connect with any of the application points. So as I share these things, what I want to encourage you to do is be prayerful for the Spirit's guidance to lead you into what it is you need to hear about being unashamed of the gospel. There's a lot of talk today. This is the first one. There's a lot of talk today about religious liberty. There's things going on in Georgia, North Carolina, and some other states about religious liberty. And if you don't know what religious liberty is or what these things have to do with, essentially our Constitution, um, the way that it guarantees religious liberty is by, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm immediately right now aware of all the people who do legal work in this, con this congregation. <laughs> so if I send out an email after this cleaning up some stuff, you'll know why. But essentially, as a pastor, my understanding is that the way we have religious liberty is that laws and governmental practices neither promote religion or interfere with its free exercise. So we don't have a government that says, you, this is, we prefer this religion, and we don't have a government that says, no, you can't go after this. So there's a lot of talk today about religious liberty. 
what might happen to pastors, what might happen to believers, what might happen to our bathrooms. There's a lot of talk about religious liberty. We must remember, Paul spoke the words, I am not ashamed of the gospel in a setting where there was no religious liberty. Like It's really important for us to remember that. Because if you think, if they take away my religious liberty, they take away the power of the gospel, you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong. That's not how it works. Paul spoke those words where there was no religious liberty. There were no laws afforded to him to give him the freedom that he had. His freedom existed outside of the law. It was bigger than Rome. It was bigger than Judaism. I'm not dogging on religious liberty, and I'm certainly not against it. But we just have to remember what the end goal is for Christians in that. What the, what the final, the end game, the final goal, the ultimate purpose of such re- liberty is. Religious liberty's final goal is not that I would be able to smear my view of life and marriage in the faces of those who don't agree with me. The end goal of religious liberty is not to make our bathrooms and changing rooms more safe for our children, although that's important. The end goal isn't even to guarantee that I, as a pastor, don't have to perform a marriage ceremony for two people of the same sex. The end goal of religious liberty for us, for believers, is that there would be an environment where the gospel can continue to move forward so that the children of God hear his voice as we proclaim it. That's what we enjoy, right? We're not hoping that the government makes the decision that only the gospel can go forward, right? That's certainly not our hope. If that's your hope, your worldview is backwards. It is not right. But our hope is that the gospel can go forward because we trust that the gospel has power above and beyond anything else that can go forward, right? We trust that the gospel has power above anything else that might be shared. And where the laws of a country infringe upon that movement and aim to suppress the truth, aim to suppress the the gospel, God's people have to speak up. Not in angry overbearing, ridiculous ways, but we have to speak up. Like Paul, we must not only proclaim that we are not ashamed of the gospel, we must proclaim the gospel itself. Religious liberty or not, the gospel is going to go forward. It's a fool's game to scream about religious liberty if you are not standing firmly in the gospel. We must firmly stand in the gospel for any of the other stuff to make sense. And if you're standing firmly in the gospel, you will proclaim and obey it whether there are laws to support you or not, right? That's what Christians are called to, right? That's how Christianity has moved forward for millennia, right? The second thing is we must battle against the shame that comes from those who disapprove of the gospel. We must battle against the shame that comes from those who disapprove of the gospel, I recently read of a pastor quoting Alistair Begg, so I'm about to share a quote of a quote. I think that's okay, but I want you all to understand that before I share it. It's, it's a guy quoting another guy, and then he gives some commentary on the original quote that I'm quoting. Hopefully that's clear. He says, I heard Alistair Begg say recently that his unbelieving friends criticized him in the 60s because they did not believe that the gospel was true. In the 90s, They criticize him for claiming that there is any truth. I want to read that again, and I want you all to think about it. 
His friends criticized him in the 60s because he believed the gospel was true. In the 90s, they criticized him for claiming that there is any truth. In other words, today, the shaming is not to say that you are wrong, but to say that you are arrogant if you think others are wrong. Not that you have bad thinking, but that you have a bad attitude. The greatest weapon of shaming today in the world of religious claims is the accusation that you are intolerant and therefore mean-spirited and egotistical. That was written in the 90s. And things have changed quite a bit since the 90s, right? I don't know if they've gotten better in regards to this. But today, I would, I would offer, I would say that the accusation includes you're not just mean-spirited and egotistical and intolerant, but you're bigoted, hateful, and intolerable. Right? Some sitting here have experienced that. We must remain firm and unashamed when proclamation of and obedience to the gospel is met with name-calling, insults, loss of relationships, and changes in the way people treat us at work. We have to take into account the ever-increasing eternal joy that comes from being in the presence of God as an approved child. That's the power of the gospel, bringing saved people unto salvation. That will cause us to be far less concerned about someone else's approval of us and far more concerned about God's approval of them, right? It makes us want to help them to get to a place where God approves of them because he approves of Christ in them. The third thing is we battle the unbelief that sees people too far gone to be changed by the gospel. Our belief in the power of the gospel comes from standing in it. So part of this application point is to continue in the gospel. So this, this application point kind of has two things. One, battle the unbelief that comes from, from, from thinking people can't be changed by the gospel. The people are too far gone. But in order to do that, you have to stand firmly in the gospel. So what does that mean to continue in the gospel? Find a church home if you don't have one. We, we, I think we try to bring this up every Sunday. If you're here, you're visiting, you don't have a church home, whether it's this church home or another, find a church home if you don't have one. And if you have one, don't be wishy-washy and lazy and disconnected. Connect to people. Find a life group. Quit viewing the spiritual disciplines as optional. Read your Bible. Meditate on God's word. Pray. Serve others. Love the lost. Continue in the gospel. I would offer that if you are standing firmly in the gospel, it would be impossible to actually be ashamed of it, right? I think we're really ashamed of the gospel when we're standing a little bit in something else and not completely in the gospel. When we're standing a little bit on our, our opinions or our thoughts or what people think about such things, but if we're standing firmly in the gospel, I think it will be much harder to be ashamed of it. If you're standing firmly in your opinions or firmly in your traditions or firmly in your freedoms, you might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel when such things are threatened. But if we're standing firmly in the gospel, we will have the strength and the courage and the fortitude to continue to proclaim it to both the lost and the saved, never wasting a bunch of time thinking about if it's powerful enough to work. If we're standing in it, we'll proclaim it and we won't be bogged down on, is this gonna work? Is it possible that this would have any effect? Of course it will. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. If you were not too far gone, neither is anybody else. 
If you sit here as a saved person, there's not a wretched person, a wicked soul that you could ever engage that doesn't have the same potential to be saved by the power of the gospel. Our fourth application of the morning is also our preparation for the supper. Turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's your application point. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ was tempted in the same way we were tempted, but without failing. When people shamed him, it did not lead to him being unashamed because he despised the shame. So our application for Romans 1.16 is to look to Jesus, who despised the shame. Rather than becoming ashamed as a result of being rejected, mocked, and hung on a cross with a crown of thorns that made a mockery of his eternal kingship, he set an example to Paul and to the church in Rome and to us. Rather than allowing shame to drive him to being ashamed, he despised it and he entrusted himself to God. When you stand firmly in the gospel, believing it's the power of God to bring you from the point of being saved unto salvation, you are entrusting yourself to God. We're called to entrust our children to God. As a pastor, I entrust you guys to God. We do our best, but ultimately we trust the gospel and the power that lies in it. And we entrust ourselves to God by standing firmly in the gospel. And now, Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was worth it. It was worth it. Please don't think that it will not ultimately be worth it to stand firmly in the gospel. Please believe what God says, what Christ says, what his apostles say about the power of the gospel. Please look to Christ who despised the shame because it was worth it. As we distribute the elements, I want you to really think about those areas in your life where you are shamed and where you might be tempted to being ashamed of the gospel. My prayer as we distribute the elements and what I hope your prayer is, is that it would be a very honest time where we consider, is there any part of the truth that I stand in, is there any part of it that I'm ashamed of, that I need to repent, I need to confess that, I need to repent, and I need to return to standing firmly in the gospel. I want you to take those things to God in prayer and ask for strength, courage, and gospel truth to shape your views. Let's pray as we prepare to take the supper. Lord, 
I confess that I feel incredibly small this morning. You've charged me to speak of your power with clarity and truth. Lord, I, I almost feel like there's not hardly anything that I could say that would come close to really capturing the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But I pray that I and everyone else here would be unashamed of that gospel. I pray that somehow, by the power of the gospel itself, that we would be encouraged and quickened this morning to not be ashamed, but to stand firmly, to continue in it, and to speak up. Lord, I pray for honesty in the next few minutes as we consider and as we look to Christ who despised the shame and endured the cross in our place. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.